Welcome to the Boonville Worship Center Sermon Podcast. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Wednesday night, our equip service. We are glad you are here. Lord, we thank you, God, for this evening. Father, we pray that you would wash us with your word. God, I pray that our hearts would settle, that our hearts would be at peace. God, that your word would be the anchor of our soul. God, that you would grow within us, God, the fruit of the Spirit. God, that you would multiply within us, God, the things that you, that please you, God, that you, that we would be salt and light, God, that we would be active in our pursuit of you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Scott was going to teach this last uh, session on the Sermon on the Mount, but he had to leave early for California. So he is in California for the next couple weeks. Um, so you can be praying for him and his family, that the Lord would be with them as he spends time with his wife and his daughter. So we are, for, for now, we are closing up the series on the Sermon on the Mount um, tonight. There's obviously more content to the Sermon on the Mount than the verses that we're covering. So Scott is leaving the door open for himself at some future date after he takes a breather to jump back in. I'm sure he will um, to continue to focus on the topic. Um, just at, uh, if you didn't know, there have been many famous Bible teachers um, throughout the generations that have spent significant amounts of time on this one sermon. So there are people like Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, there are others that have literally spent, like Martin Lloyd-Jones spent 60 uh, weeks, I believe, on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it wasn't on purpose. He just went phrase by phrase and verse by verse, and it ended up taking 60 weeks to do that. So just like that is the level of importance that this sermon carries and has carried, not just in our generation, but in the generations that went before us. Like that's how dense the sermon is that you can literally go phrase by phrase and unpack it. Um, so just know if, if this topic is touching you, there are many, many books written on the topic. You can go online and find sermon series that are far beyond eight weeks um, to go through phrase by phrase and verse by verse through topics like this, because that's what we need. One thing I was thinking about earlier during the prayer time was just the reality that whether it's your fish or your dog or your houseplant, like you can't just stop feeding it, right? You can't just stop watering it. If you do, slowly but surely, or depending on wh wh which of that it is, it's going to die. It's going to shrivel up and die. So for us, the Word of God is that source of life for us, and we have the privilege and the responsibility to wash ourselves with the water of His Word, to care for it, to value it, to cherish it, to allow it to change and influence our belief systems, our behavioral patterns, and we sit under the Word and we say, God, if your word says that this is the best way to live and we run up against the wall trying to do it another way, then we humble ourselves and step back and say, okay, God, teach me. Teach me a better way. And that's really what the Sermon on the Mount is calling us to. It's showing us that perfection that's available, not, not perfection in the sense of never making a mistake, but just the, the, you know, where God is saying, if you are like this, then this is, then you're blessed, right? I mean, you can go phrase by phrase through the Beatitudes and, and realize pretty quickly, like, it's beautiful, but it's also really challenging when we try to translate that to real life. So, um, Matthew 5, 1 through 12, we know from Scott's teaching that that is, it, the Sermon on the Mount begins with the eight Beatitudes, then we have in Matthew 5, 13 through 20, we have that call to be salt and light, right? To be something um, that preserves, something that adds 
right? I mean, there's so many different um, things that salt does. You know, it's an antiseptic. It's it preserves. It adds flavor. It 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 adds adds life in so many ways. So we're called to be that. We're called to be a light, um, and that is again a challenge. Like we're not just called to be salt and light on a good day. We're not just called to be salt and light when we have had after our coffee and we're healthy and we, you know, haven't had any tension in our life. It's like we're called to be salt and light every day on the worst day when you're most stressed, when you're most tempted. Like that is the call. That's, that, that's Christ saying, if I'm going to ask you to do something, you can't do it without my help, but I'm right there to help you. So we seek the grace, we seek the empowerment of God to help us walk out the Sermon on the Mount. Because what God doesn't want is for us to just jump up and down being like, yes, I can do this from my own strength. Because pretty quick, either we're going to become this uber prideful person that thinks that we're accomplishing all the call of the Sermon on the Mount in our own strength, or we're just going to run up against that wall and be like, it's impossible and write the sermon off as if it doesn't matter. We don't, wanna, we don't want either of those. We don't want to write the sermon off saying the standard's too high, I can't attain it, nor do we want to jump up and down and say, I can do this if I just try harder. So there's, there's this tension between character growing, there's an, there's an element, and I may, I may hit this Sunday. It's, I've began to think about it, but haven't developed it fully. But there's the call to, you know, to, to pick up our cross, to deny ourselves, to strive in, in, our, in our effort to, to cease from sin. But at the same time, we don't strive in our flesh to hit those high bars. Like we, we, we go farther in God, we go farther in character as we let go. As we, it's, 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 there's this weird tension. It's like God calls us to strive against sin on the one hand, but freedom is found when we, on some level, let go of a different type of striving in our flesh. Does that make sense? Like, he, he wants us to let go of personal, trying to do it on our own, but yet with God, we do engage our effort if that makes sense. With God, we engage all of our being to say, God, I can only do it through you, but I'm participating. I'm going to join you in doing this. I'm going to partner with you in doing this. But if, if God isn't in the picture, then you can strive to your heart's content and you won't actually accomplish it. Right? The Bible says that we can accomplish anything with him, but without him we can do nothing. All right, so Matthew 5, uh, 21 through 48, um, is to, Pastor Scott talked about resisting the seven major temptations. So we have the call to resist the temptation to embrace anger. He talked about that this last Sunday. And the call to resist the temptation of immorality. Um, and then we have, that's verse 27 through 30. And then he, there's this call to resist the temptation of not honoring the marriage covenant, and that's verse 31 and 32. And then we're called to resist the temptation of making false commitments, and that's verse uh, 31 to 37. And then we have the call to resist the temptation of retaliation and defensiveness, and that obviously could be a 10-part series in and of itself. But to resist the temptation to retaliate and to be defensive. Um, and that is verse 38 through 42. And then we're also called to resist the temptation of hating our enemies. Right? It says, love, lo love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Like that again. Like it, that's why the Sermon on the Mount can take so many weeks. Because you can take a single phrase like that and just unpack it for 10 weeks. Um, and that is why the Sermon on the Mount is really considered by many, perhaps most scholars, to be the greatest sermon um, in Scripture. All right, so Matthew chapter 6. That is where we are going tonight. 
Matthew chapter 6. So there's no such thing. So tonight we're talking about embracing the spiritual disciplines. So we just, Pastor Scott covered resisting these major temptations. And then we have the Beatitudes, this call to, you know, to, to follow Christ in these ways. And now we have this call to embrace spiritual disciplines. There's no such thing as successfully resisting temptation over the long haul without embracing wisdom, right? I mean, you can, in your own strength, be like, oh, I'm going to go 90 days without drinking, or I'm going to go you know, so many weeks without, without pursuing this sin or that sin. I mean, even secular people have accomplished some of those, some of those goals. But the reality is, if we want heart transformation with our behavior lining up with the word, then it takes something more than just trying to run faster and jump higher. And that is what these spiritual disciplines are about. Like I I personally and my wife, neither of us are that disciplined when it comes to taking care of our houseplants. We're just not. Right? So we, we buy plants and then we either overwater them, underwater them, I don't know, just or they don't get enough light. But things just happen and they don't thrive. Right? So it, it, some of those plants can, have held on for lots of years, but they've held on on life support. <laughs> right? So when we're talking about overcoming temptation, I don't want to overcome temptation as like this death or life struggle where I'm on life support every month. So the spiritual disciplines is that that heart commitment to say, God, I'm going to let go of my flesh in a far bigger way than just letting go of the temptation to lash out or the temptation to pursue immorality or whatever. Like it's, it's more than just that narrow thing that I'm letting go of. I'm letting go of the carnal nature. I'm letting go of that deeper need to be in control. I'm letting go of, of that thing where I get to pick what idol I pursue and Christ is going to be secondary to the idol that I choose to pursue. So there's, there's something more freeing when we let go of more than just something narrow. And that involves embracing spiritual disciplines. In other words, there's an underlying structure of wise living and underlying commitments that fuel long-term Christian maturity and freedom. We have to believe and live out the truth in order to reap the harvest of blessing and freedom. So Jesus wants us to pay attention to our motivation related to our embrace of spiritual disciplines. And, and that's what we're going to see in, the, in this section of chapter 6. It's not just the spiritual disciplines. It's the heart motivation. Where is my heart as I embrace disciplines? If my heart is not pure, and if my motive towards doing the disciplines is not right, then the Bible says I receive no benefit, and I don't receive eternal rewards. And that's what's crazy about this list of disciplines. After every discipline, it says that God sees in secret and that he rewards those that do it. That's crazy. Like God is saying that he is looking. The the tension in the body is always to look at the church and be like, oh, it's just religious. Like, like how dare you, you know, from the pulpit, tell me that that I can't... That I, that I shouldn't drink and I shouldn't watch rated R movies and I shouldn't do this and I shouldn't do that. Like, it's just religious. But Jesus himself is saying, embrace a better way of living and I'm attaching eternal rewards to it. So in our flesh, we can kick and scream for a season of our life or we can kick and scream for 50 years and say, well, no, I'm not, I'm not going to embrace... I'm not going to embrace crucifying my flesh. I'm not going to embrace any spiritual disciplines because I, because I think a loving God wouldn't tell me, wouldn't tell me to say no to my flesh. 
But God's like, man, learn to lay down your self-righteousness. Learn to lay down your carnal pursuit of this and that and the other. And I'm going to reward you for it. So, but before there's a reward, it opens up in, in, in uh, chapter 6, verse 1. It says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So it opens up with a warning. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men. So right out of the gate, if, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear, there should be at least a little bit of intrepidation in our spirit saying, God, am I? Am I doing what I'm doing to be seen by men? And if I am, God help me. If I am, forgive me. If I am, root out pride. If I am, transform me at a deeper level. Because the Bible's saying, if the heart motivation is to be seen, is to impress the people around you, then we don't receive a reward from God. I mean, it, it, it's easy. Any Anytime you go into a sphere, wh wh you know, whether you like uh, riding bicycles, you know, you join a bicycle club, or you like whatever, and you join, you, you, you join a little club, it's easy in that environment to, to try to work your way to the top, work your way to that place of prominence where it's like, everyone knows you're the real guy that loves this discipline. You're the real guy that loves to whatever it is. And there can be that thing in our hearts of where, where we actually are getting better or we think we're getting better at that discipline, riding that bike, losing that weight, whatever it may be, poker, you know, whatever, the various clubs out there you can join. You, could, you can find people in the city that like anything if you want to. And you could legitimately be getting better at that skill set but if the heart motivation is that you'll be seen by men, then this verse is saying, that's the end. That's the end of the reward. So the first thing, it's like that check in our spirit of God, help. So Jesus is defining these spiritual disciplines. And another thing to note is he's defining the spiritual discipline, disciplines as practicing your righteousness. In other words, he sees putting our words into action and actually living out our faith as walking in righteousness. And he also acknowledges that it must be practiced. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men. It doesn't say don't practice your righteousness. It says beware of the motivation. So that means as we grow in character, as we grow in righteousness, it is a practice. Right, So I learn to discern between good and evil through practice. So we don't wake up one morning and suddenly have the grace and the discipline and the passion and the humility to give, pray, forgive, and fast. How many of you have ever woken up and be like, oh my goodness, I was a one yesterday, now I'm a ten. I, I used to like hate giving money away, now I just like give it all away. Or I never fasted in my life and now I'm going to fast 40 days on water. Generally speaking, that doesn't happen, right? So we don't just wake up with the grace and the passion and the perfect heart response. So I'm going to read a quote. Hypocritical religion is perverse because it is destructive. We haven't seen, what we have seen that praying Giving and fasting are all authentic activities in their own right. To pray is to seek God. To give is to serve others. To fast is to discipline oneself. But the effect of his hypocrisy is to destroy the integrity of these practices by turning each of them into an occasion for self-display. And that's by John Stott. So he's saying... Because the, 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 if, if, as we go through this, this chapter, we see this warning against hypocrisy over and over again. 
So beware of the hypocrite. Don't do it like the hypocrite. So he's saying hypocrisy is destructive because it takes the, the value, it takes the purity of the practice and it makes it about us. Right? So I am, I, I am hypocritical if, if in my giving I'm wanting everyone to notice how amazing of a giver I am. Or if in my praying I want everyone to see how much I pray and I don't do it in my closet. Right? So th 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 there's this challenge that there's something inside of the human frame that wants to do it before men because we have this self-focus and we want, we want to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. That temptation is in all of us and that's why there's this challenge to not be like the hypocrite. All right, so Matthew 6, 2 through 4. This first discipline is in giving. So it says, when you give to the poor... Do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give uh, to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So first off, we see throughout this chapter, it says when you give. It says when you pray, when you fast. So there's this assumption that as believers, we're engaging in these disciplines, right? It doesn't say if you give, or if you fast, or if you pray. It says when. So when you give. So the issue isn't are you doing the disciplines as much as are you doing it with a pure heart and from a healthy motivation. Because it says, when you give, make sure you don't do it like the hypocrite. So the exhortation is that no one needs to know how generous you are. Right? I don't need my name or my reputation attached to how much I give or don't give, or you give or don't give. We don't need our name or reputation attached. It says, do it in private. But there's also another really interesting thing. It says, it says, don't do it as the hypocrites do. So what does that mean? The hypocrites are embracing giving. Hypocrites give. So I can't measure my Christianity by whether I'm giving or not. It says the hypocrites give. And then it goes even farther and it says, where do the hypocrites give? They give in the synagogue and in the street. In the synagogue and in the street. So where are the hypocrites? By definition, the hypocrites, some of them are in the church. And they're giving. And then they're also doing it in the streets. Right? I mean, often we, we, we measure Christianity by like, are you active? Are you giving? Are you tithing? Are you a real Christian? Are you tithing? I mean, I'm not saying we should use that language. I'm saying everyone's vaguely familiar with that sentiment. So, but here it's saying, it's challenging. It, it, it's saying even the hypocrites give, but they do it with the wrong motive. They give so that they can be seen. And they're doing it in the synagogue, meaning they're showing up to the church service, and then they're also doing it in the streets. So there's some form of activity as, you know, like, hey, I'm actually giving, I'm giving, I'm giving, to, I'm giving to the soup kitchen, I'm giving to this organization, I'm giving to that organization, I'm giving. But they're doing it to bolster their own self-image. So, and then it says this phrase that is oh, puzzling says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. All right, so you know what that means? That means when you write a check to give, you have to close one eye. <laughs> All right, not, not exactly. All right, it, it, it's impossible to give and not know it. I can't like close my eyes and 
scribble a check and give it away and not know how much it was. So it's not talking about not knowing, you have to know technically, right, what you're giving. But it is talking about that Christian giving is to be marked by self-sacrifice and self-forgetfulness, not by self-congratulation. So that's another quote by John Stott. So what this means is this is a fancy way of saying don't focus internally on your giving. If you're internally focused, then you will accidentally or purposefully slip into self-righteousness. You will slip into comp comparing, accurately or inaccurately, you will be comparing your generosity or your you know, heart to give or grace to give, and you'll be comparing it to others while bolstering your self-image inside yourself, even if no one knows. You can do this all inside. So it's saying, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. In other words, give, but, have self, but have, be, have, allow there to be generosity, but also self-forgetfulness. Give, but don't focus on it internally. Because if you happen to give more than you used to, you don't want to be like, boy, Jason, now you're really righteous. <laughs> That's the challenge. Is embrace the discipline, but we don't want to focus on ourselves, because inevitably that leads to the temptation of hypocrisy inside of us. All right, so the second discipline, spiritual discipline, is prayer. Matthew chapter 6, 5 through 15. It says, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then it says, verse 7, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition, as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words, so do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others, then your, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. So when you pray, so again, there's this, there's this expectation that we will all engage in prayer. But then it says, don't do it like the hypocrites. They love to pray. Crazy. So the hypocrites love to give, and now it says the hypocrites love to pray. It's like, well, how am I going to know if I'm really a believer or not? I'm giving, I'm praying, the hypocrites are giving and praying, God have mercy. And there's something healthy about that, of checking our hearts and saying, God, I'm sure I've prayed and been too focused on people's perception of me when I prayed. God, help. Because, I mean, how many of you know, like, it, it's a blessing to the body to participate in corporate prayer. So the call here is not to never pray corporately, but the call is to also, or to primarily have our hunger for God in prayer to fuel praying that isn't just in front of people. Right? So the, the, the hypocrite will pray publicly, 
but will they pray privately? The hypocrite will give publicly, but will they give when no one knows? So that's what we need to work through in our heart, to say, God, give me the grace to desire to engage with you when no one's looking. Give me the grace to desire to be willing to help someone else with finances when no one's looking. That prayer is a prayer of humility to say, God left to myself, I'm probably going to get this wrong. But with your grace, with your help, I can engage with these things in secret and be storing up blessings eternally. So the foundation of prayer is the true identity of who we are praying to. So it says this. It says, so, uh, verse 8, So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And then it says, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven. So prayer is rooted in the identity of God. Prayer is rooted in the identity of God. As I am convinced of who God is, then I could care less who in the natural is witnessing me praying or not. I mean, y'all are cool, but the creator of heaven and earth showing up to my personal prayer meeting is cooler. It's cooler than you saying, I love your deep voice when you pray. Right? So that's the call. The call is to value the our Father to be enraptured in his identity and to say, okay, the opinions of man regarding how I pray, positive or negative, they, they'll come and go, and it's not really that important. But the Heavenly Father who hears me in the middle of the night when I can't sleep and I engage with God, right, that matters. So we are also reminded that God is in heaven and he is holy. And this is important because in prayer, we are tempted sometimes to complain or to make demands of God or to accuse God of inaction, right, related to our requests. But if I remember that it's a father, our father, he is in heaven and he's holy, then by the grace of God, I can tone down, I can engage with God in crucifying my flesh, and I can, in, in essence, bite my tongue and be careful because I stand before a holy God. Even on a hard day, I don't want to find myself threatening God or accusing God or you know, railing against God for not answering my prayers. In weakness, we're all capable of that. But let's remember that God is holy and he's a father. He knows what we need before we even ask. And that again is the foundation of, of, of prayer. Knowing that he cares. He may delay longer than we think. He might not answer in the way that we hope. But we know that the goodness of God is he's a father, he cares, and he hears. So part of this call to prayer is also our responsibility to embrace forgiveness of other sins. Right? So it flows right from prayer into saying, don't lead us into temptation, deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will forgive you. It's like you, on some level we're tempted to detach the two and say, okay, these verses are talking about prayer, and then we're talking about forgiveness. But really, it's one and the same. We can't pray effectively if there's unforgiveness or bitterness in our hearts. Right? So, so we have to deal with that. We have to say, God, I want to be forgiven. I'm aware of transgression in my own heart. Therefore, I must forgive the sins committed against me. So, 
uh, I'm going to read another quote. It says, so we must choose our audience carefully. If we prefer human spectators, we shall lose our Christian integrity. The same will happen if we become our own audience. As Bonhoeffer once put it, it is even more pernicious if I turn myself into a spectator of my own prayer performance. I can lay on a very nice show for myself, even in the privacy of my own room. So we must choose God for our audience. As Jesus watched the people putting in uh, their gifts into the temple treasury, so God watches us as we give. As we pray and as we fast secretly, he is there in the secret place. So, and that is also by John Stott. So we have to choose our audience. As we pray, our focus should be on the God who hears us, not on me performing or not performing. Because sometimes my prayers are articulate. Sometimes my prayers are passionate. And sometimes my, my words absolutely stumble. But does God really hear one better than the other? Does God really look at articulation, at putting the comma and the pause and the inflection in the right spot? So he hears, no matter what it sounds like to us. So forgiveness is this third spiritual discipline. It says in verse 12, I'll read this again. It says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. How many of you have read that and just just become speechless. I think this warning about not forgiving people is one of the most fear of the Lord inducing scriptures that I'm aware of. If we want forgiveness from God, we must forgive others. This is one of the hardest truths to receive and to live out. If I want God's forgiveness, I must forgive. I mean, this is an ultimatum. God's literally like, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. And this is Jesus himself in his most famous sermon saying this. This isn't like tucked away in Habakkuk. Habakkuk's a great book. But it's not just tucked away in some Old Testament passage. Here we see Jesus himself calling us to forgive so that we can be forgiven. How many of you have thought at some point in your life, surely there are categories of experience and suffering that are so bad that we don't have to forgive people? You ever thought that? There are categories of sin or suffering or negative experience that are so bad that this verse just disappears from the requirement list. That's challenging because people really go through suffering. Serious, painful suffering. We get sinned against in ways we can't control. And some of it's atrocious. But yet somewhere in there, God is still saying, I want to forgive you. But if you don't forgive, that's going to prevent me from forgiving you. So at the center of a healthy humility is an awareness that we have debts, right? It says, forgive us our debts. Knowing and remembering that we have debts that we need forgiven helps us embrace the call to forgive. Because if, if I'm so worked up over how bad the sin is or the trauma or the crisis that someone else has put me through in, the, in their own fleshly indulgence, 
if I'm so worked up over the pain of that, I can forget that I have debts that need forgiven. I'm just like, well, God, who cares that I've done this sin and that sin and that sin because they're nowhere near as bad as so-and-so. And they hurt me so bad, who cares? Surely you'll overlook these sins even if I don't forgive these sins because these sins are 100,000 times more egregious and pain-inducing and traumatizing. And they gave me PTSD and they did this and they did that. They're like, they're, they can be real. But the call is, God, forgive me my debts as I forgive others. Which means before God, everyone needs to be forgiven. Which is why there's that call to live by grace. To receive grace and give grace. To receive forgiveness and give forgiveness. So part of the temptation we need deliverance from is the temptation to not forgive others. And part of the evil that we need deliverance from is the evil of not forgiving others. So it says in that verse, verse 13, do not lead us into temptation, deliver us from evil. And it says that right after it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive others. It says, do not lead me into temptation and deliver me from evil. I've always looked at that as like this completely separate statement. Like deliver me from these other temptations that are completely different from this reality of forgiveness. And I would say as it, as it pertains to applying the word, we can apply it both ways. I mean, obviously, God, f deliver me from the temptation to gamble and the temptation to curse and the temptation to do this and that, like, sure. But we also need God to, to deliver us from the temptation to not forgive. The temptation to be embittered, the temptation to hold on to the hatred of others for what they've done to us. So we need deliverance from the evil of not forgiving others. Have you ever thought of it that way? When I don't forgive others, it's evil. I mean, I, I've, I've thought about this. If, if God is willing to forgive others, I mean, pick the most egregious sin that you've ever heard of in your family line, against your family line. If God's willing to forgive that, then who are you not to forgive it? If God in his perfection of understanding, his perfection of justice, right? He's a perfect judge. His perfection of justice, his perfection of understanding, his perfection of understanding the motives, if he's willing to forgive those awful things, then who am I not to? Who am I to stand before God and actually say, you know, you're actually unjust in forgiving so-and-so for what they've done. I'm a better judge. Step out of the way. That's what unforgiveness is doing. It's saying, God, you don't qualify to be the judge of this scenario because my pain's too deep. My, my pain qualifies me to put on that robe as judge, to grab that gavel, and to smack it as hard as I can, and to declare my own verdict to dispense my own wrath because my pain qualifies me to stand as judge. I mean, in our pain, we can work ourselves up and present a good case to our friends and our family and those that will sympathize with us. But in reality, God is the perfect judge. Right? The, the Bible says that some sins are found out and have judgment placed in, in their lifetime. The Bible says there are also sins that follow a man after death. In other words, there are scenarios in life where people 
at least in the natural, it looks like they legitimately got away with it without justice. And what's hard is to realize that some of those people or those scenarios that people get away with sin without earthly justice, there are people on the other side of that sin. Sometimes that could be me, or that could be my grandma, or that could be whoever. But even in that scenario, we have to believe that God is the perfect judge. That even if someone doesn't face justice before death, we know they will face, face perfect justice after death. And that is that call to forgive, is to say, what comes after death is more important than me demanding justice on this side. So we see warnings about hypocrisy for all of these disciplines except, except for forgiving. Have you ever noticed that? Because here we see it says the hypocrite still gives, the hypocrite pay, or, or, uh, prays, and the hypocrite fasts. But it doesn't say the hypocrite forgives. Hypocrite can't forgive because their pain is too deep. They have too many reasons to self-justify themselves out of forgiving. A real believer at some point will let go of the pain of the past and forgive. I'm not saying that struggling to forgive means that I or you am a hopeless hypocrite destined for eternal destruction. How many of you have struggled to forgive? I'm not saying that the, that the struggle or the feeling weak in forgiving proves that you're a hopeless hypocrite and you might as well give up. But I am saying at some point in the graciousness of God, he is going to call us and woo us and say, you got to let it go. Even if so-and-so doesn't face real justice on this side of eternity. If we understood how bad eternal justice is, I mean, it's proportionate. I'm not, let me say that. But if, if we understood how awful eternity without God under eternal damnation is, then I would never want anyone to suffer that. And I would all the more want to forgive. Not only forgive, but plead the blood of God over them so that God would also forgive them. But we often aren't thinking about eternity. We're thinking about now. We're thinking about my present pain. So in my present pain, it doesn't feel right that so-and-so is off the hook for what they've done. But the call is to forgive. Forgive them because you're running a bigger race. Forgive them because there's life after death. Forgive them because God's the perfect judge and he sees everything and everything will, be, everything will come to account under his leadership. So spiritual discipline number four, fasting. It says, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do for they neglect their appearance so that they will so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting truly i say to you they have their reward in full but you when you fast anoint your head wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you so the benefits of fasting have nothing to do with anyone ever knowing you did it Right? Whenever you fast, don't do it in a way that others can notice. Sometimes that's impossible. Sometimes you skip a meal and someone's like, did you skip lunch? What are you doing? Or they invite you to lunch or dinner and you're like, nope, can't go. They're like, why? Are you fasting? 
Sometimes people will know. But our heart motive should be to generally not have that happen. That we do it before the Lord. So for the, for the purpose of fasting is not to advertise ourselves, but to discipline ourselves. Not to gain a reputation for ourselves, but to express our humility before God and our concern for others in need. And that's another quote by John Stott. So the purpose of fasting is not to advertise ourselves, but to discipline ourselves. So fasting can be done as part of our repentance for sin. I mean, in our modern times, I don't, I don't know that I very often hear those two put together. But if you look in the Bible, there's tons of examples of people in their repentance of sin, they fast. Um, from King David to, you know, Nineveh and other, uh, there's other times and places, Joel 2, where there's this, there's this repentance and fasting are linked together. So we can fast as part of genuine repentance. We're humbling ourselves before God. We can also fast as a way to intentionally seek God for clarity, help, or direction in key seasons of our life. And we can also fast as we intercede for breakthrough in others' lives or as we intercede for breakthrough for entire nations. And we see that in Joel 2, this call to corporate fasting. Everyone gathers from the nursing mother to the to the person that just got married, everyone gathers to a solemn assembly to pray and fast. And that's challenging for our modern fast world where everything's just moving, moving, moving. So many places to be, so many things to do. But I don't think the call to fasting expired on the generation before technology hit or the generation before airplanes, or the generation before work meetings, right? So there's a tension there of, of just a willingness, a humility of saying, God, I'm not claiming this, this amazing grace to fast, but Lord, help. I'm willing. I think I'm willing. I want to be willing. So th there's this reality of when you fast, And, 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 and fasting can take on different graces in different seasons. You can have a grace to fast in one season, and in the next season it's like, man, it, it gets ten times as hard. But we fast not before men, we fast before God. And God's aware of all those scenarios. God's aware of the heart posture. God's aware of the difficulties. So when you fast... I mean, we know the world is getting crazy. I don't know what that means. I mean, I, I have, I've studied the end times. There's, there's things I, I am aware of, but I don't know the exact timing of things. All I know is things are getting crazy. So something in my heart is saying, God, give me open eyes. Keep me alert. Give me a heart for prayer. Give me a heart to engage. And Lord, if, if you want or need me to fast personally or corporately, then I'm willing. Because I think there really are times coming where it's not just Something where, where some charismatic leader gets up and screams real loud and says we all need to fast. But it's like it's, it's that call, however that's demonstrated, has to translate into humble hearts that actually say, okay, God, I'm going to do it. Even though I feel weak. Even though I don't know how to do it. Even though I don't like getting headaches. Or whatever. So I'm, I'm just, I'm saying that 
as I feel it in my own spirit of just like, God, when you fast, like, okay, God, show us corporately how to engage and how to respond. All right, so I will end it with this last verse real quick. Matthew six nineteen through 21. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And you could call this a spiritual discipline, maybe. This call to store up treasure in heaven. Um, but we are called to be disciplined and pure in our motives and in our life ambition. I think that's really some of what this is talking about. This, this saying, store up, for your store up for yourself treasures in heaven. In other words, what's your aim? Is my life aim to acquire earthly things that will fade away, that someone could come and steal and rust could destroy? Or is my life aim to store up for myself eternal treasures in heaven? And it says, what the tre it says how to obtain the treasures. Like this, is, this isn't just some nebulous statement of like, seek heavenly treasures. It says how to do it. It says if we, if we give with a pure heart, if we pray from a pure heart, if we fast from a pure heart, then there's rewards involved. Like that's how we're, that's how we're storing up treasures. And that's a message that we, that, that we have to wrestle with because the world is saying, how dare you? How dare you tell me to give? You're just some greedy church that wants all my money. How dare you tell me to fast? I like my cheeseburgers. How dare you tell me to forgive? Look at what they did to me. But the, the, the reality is that God is saying, embrace the difficulty and the humility of these disciplines of praying and fasting and forgiving and giving and those eternal treasures that God wants to release to us. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The reality is will am I pursuing am I pursuing treasure that is beyond the grave or not? To obtain treasure beyond the grave, I have to die to myself now. But if I seek to save my life, if I seek to grow my life in the natural, I will lose it. If we lose our life for the sake of God and the pursuit of his kingdom, we will gain everything that God promises us. It's really a matter of faith. We trust God by honoring and believing that he will reward us with rewards that we cannot presently see. I can't see the rewards that God's going to give me. I can't weigh them on a scale. But by faith, I can deny myself, live for God, and believe that I will be rewarded. And that is the call of the gospel. So that's as far as we are going for the Sermon on the Mount. And maybe in January or February or some other month, Pastor Scott will pick up again on this glorious topic. So I'm going to pray. Lord, God, we are humbled by your word. Father, we pray that you would give us purity of heart in all that we do. God, we pray that we would cherish you in public and in private. God, that we would have a heart to pray in public and in private. God, I pray, God, from our giving to our fasting to our forgiving, God, I pray for the grace for authenticity. God, I pray that any hypocrisy in our hearts, God, you would forgive us and deliver us from evil. God, I pray that we would be authentic, that we would be genuine, that we would be full of love on the inside for one another. God, I pray you would empower us by your grace to live a transformed life. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. We will see you on Sunday.
Thank you for joining us this week. Until next time.